But here's what happened. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up. And saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raoul, he said, How is it that you have come home uh, so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. He called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the words of the Lord, the words of the Lord will never come to an end. I've been listening to a podcast lately called How I Built This. It's one of my favorite podcasts. It's this guy's an NPR kind of spinoff show, and this guy basically interviews these uh, creators of all these major companies, mostly very famous companies that we all know of, and he just gets the backstory for how they started and some struggles along the way. And he's interviewed uh, the founders of some I've listened to are Southwest Airlines, Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> Kickstarter, Airbnb, Starbucks, Ben and Jerry's, and even Spanx. You know what Spanx is? Spanx. It's the uh, body shaping briefs that people, mostly women, wear underneath their clothes. Okay, Spanx. He interviewed her. That was a really interesting episode. One of the biggest themes that comes up in uh, all of these stories is this idea that in almost every single one of their kind of like movement towards success is this moment of failure that becomes a definitive, defining moment of the story. When maybe they had an idea and the idea kind of starts to take off and the business begins to grow and then something, something happens. Failure enters into the story. Not just a setback, but a huge blow. One of the more intriguing examples of this is really kind of a current day failure. Like it's still, this company is still working out of it. And it's with the restaurant that many of us know and love, and that's Chipotle. Um, Chipotle uh, was founded by Steve Ells, who's an interesting guy. He is an, uh, certainly an entrepreneur, and he is a trained chef who started Chipotle. And the story of Chipotle, if you don't know it, are y'all bothered with I say Chipotle? Yes. 
Y'all call it Chipotle? Chipotle. Chipotle. In Alabama, Chipotle. And Chipotle started in Denver, so not Alabama. All right, so Chipotle. Steve Ells. All right, here's how it started. He he wanted to open up a one of these like Michelin star fancy fancy restaurants, and he was trained to do that. That was his background and training. But he uh, didn't have the money to do it, so he decided to open a burrito truck in Denver, Colorado, and he opened Chipotle as a burrito truck, where he sold. He, his goal was to sell a hundred burritos a day. Within a month, he was selling a thousand burritos per day. So it took off, it expanded, he started making all this money, decided he was going to put that other restaurant on hold for now and start opening up other branches of Chipotle. And so he did this and started making a lot of money. McDonald's became an investor and it just blew up, went public in 2006 and kind of the rest of the story is what we know of today. Except for in 2015. You may remember when in 2015, things went really wrong for Chipotle. They, uh, there were all these reports of food poisoning in several restaurants in the Pacific Northwest. Several stores had to shut down for E. coli breakout. And uh, Steve Ells talks about, you know, it, it was kind of a, uh, it was something was wrong with their process, essentially. They believe in fresh ingredients and, and they want to bring everything in fresh. And, and I've read at one point that they don't even have like freezers at all in their stores. And so they really want to work with fresh ingredients, but that comes at a risk. And, and for a few different stores, it brought E. coli into the restaurant and people were hospitalized. It's a huge, not just a setback, like this is a major failure. They started losing tons of customers, tons of stocks, like everything was going wrong in 2015. And really, they haven't fully recovered from it. In recent months, um, they have been given out like thousands and thousands of dollars of free food to try to win back customers. And I am happy to say I've been the recipient of a good bit of free food from Chipotle right up the street. And this is not a commercial, not endorsing Chipotle. Uh, I'm not being paid to say this, but I would. Like if any of you work at Chipotle and you want to like pay me off to talk about Chipotle in a positive light, I'm happy to do that. But that's not the point of this. Failure as a setback, that's the point. This defining moment where everything changes, and this is not just true for businesses, this is true for individuals, and this is certainly true spiritually speaking, this, this passage is this incredibly defining moment for Moses' life. A lot of you have kind of forgotten this part of the story, haven't you? That he killed a guy. Because we get really caught up and excited about all the things that happen right after this. But we've got to pause and think about this defining moment of failure and how it shaped him. And how it affected his relationship with God and how God viewed him. We're going to try to answer some of these questions as we go along. So where we pick up in this passage is a very quick 40-year fast forward. I don't know if you noticed from where we left off last week to where we picked up in verse 11. 40 years went by. Just like that. And at the end of our passage, 40 more years go by. So Moses goes from a baby to a 40-year-old. It's like Simba walking across the log in those two verses. It just it's so fast how they grow up. We don't know a lot about Moses in those first 40 years, right, when he was in Egypt. But what we do know is that he was raised in Pharaoh's house. He was in this very much a position of privilege or of power. Yet he still identifies with the Israelites, 
He does that a couple of different times in this passage, despite being raised as an Egyptian. But he had a better life than his fellow Israelites. In terms of his position, he was not a slave, but also in terms of his education and his training. These are things that we learn, not necessarily in these verses, but in some of the commentary on Moses from the New Testament. Stephen talks about Moses right before he's killed. Hebrews talks about Moses. So what is this defining moment of failure in his life? We're told that one day Moses was looking out over his fellow Israelites. Again, he was separate from them, but he was kind of still identifying with them, looking out over them, and he sees one of them being um, hurt, being beaten down by this Egyptian, and he feels compassion for him, and, and so he intervenes. Now, I should tell you that some people read this story and even some scholars would argue that Moses actually doesn't do anything wrong in this passage. He's just taken up for his people. He simply steps in to save his people like he's supposed to do. But I think the text, and, and definitely a lot of commentaries will say, the text seems to show that he knows that he's doing something wrong. For At least in two ways. One, he looks back and forth before he does it. Like... When do you look back and forth to do a good thing? As a dad, I totally know this move. The whole looking back and forth to make sure nobody's watching. They're about to do something. You got to watch them. This weekend, we were at this missions conference in Greenville. And I was, um, we, were, we were at this banquet on Friday night. And Kelly and I and our two girls were sitting at like one of these front tables at this banquet. And all these people were kind of sitting over here behind us. And we were sitting in this banquet, and, and Lucy, our seven-year-old, sitting beside me, and Jordan is uh, sitting beside Lucy. And, like, she keeps doing stuff under the table, little sister stuff, you know, like kicking Lucy in the foot under the table or, like, poking her when she's, like, not looking, and Lucy's getting upset. And this woman comes up after, after to, to, to me and Kelly, and she's like, your girls are so cute. And that little one, she's a stinker. Like, people see it. They see it a mile away. That's what's going on with Moses. Looking back and forth, he knows he's about to do something wrong. The second thing he does that you know that he's doing something wrong, you know that he knows, is he covers it up, literally, right? He kills this Egyptian, and then he buries him in the sand. So that's what he does. He sees this Egyptian guy beating down his Israelite brother. Moses jumps in, basically beats him to death, realizes what he's done. He's done and tries to cover it up in the sand. And then he flees the scene. Now, you might look at this and say, well, at least he had good intentions. But it's worth considering that even our good intentions might still have very wrong motivations. Or we might pursue something that is good in and of itself, like justice is a good thing to pursue. But we might pursue it in a way that's not good in and of itself or isn't honoring to God. Let me give you an example. Say you would like to be married one day. I know that's so hypothetical. None of you would agree with that statement. But let's just say someone, a college student, wanted to be married one day. Just pretend with me for a second. And so you want to be married one day, so you start to pursue a relationship with a guy or girl that you could see yourself marrying. These are good things. We are very much pro-marriage around here. But there's a way to pursue a good thing in a way that is not good in and of itself. Would you agree with that? Particularly as a Christian, you might pursue someone that God has instructed you not to date and not to marry. There are some very important biblical principles about how you spend your relational time with someone, how you date. Or you might pursue a relationship with a right person categorically, but you could do it in a way that doesn't honor God. 
with your words or with your actions or with your bodies, you can pursue something that honors God in a way that simply doesn't. So as a believer, you have to not only be aware of your behaviors, but even the motivation behind your behaviors. This is absolutely the case for Moses here. God is raising him up to be this man who will soon deliver his people out of Egypt. That's a good thing. But not yet. And not like this. This is the bad thing. Here's the principle that makes Moses' incident a huge failure and one that really can expose some of our failures as well. It's a proverb in the Bible. It comes up twice, actually, in the book of Proverbs. And it's simply this. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end of it leads to death. Moses was taking matters into his own hands regardless of what God's desire for him was. It's the way that seems right to man, the way that seems right to me. It's the way of human logic or reasoning. It's the way of human power or human strength. It's the way of human effort. Disregarding God's good plan altogether. It's the way, really we could say, of expressive individualism. It's saying, I want to date this person regardless of what God thinks about it. It's saying that I determine my view on alcohol. Regardless of what God's word might say about the laws of the land or that drunkenness is something that is offensive to God. I get to decide these things on my own. It's, it's deciding that I want to take this job in the city because it pays this much and I'll be super comfortable there. Not even taking into consideration if God has anything to say about your decisions regarding your future. It's saying that I'm tired of my roommates and I'm tired of them doing this thing and I'm going to fix it the way that makes sense to me, regardless of what God might have to say about conflict or forgiveness. There's a way that seems right to man. In our culture, by the way, our culture pushes this within us. I could give a billion examples of this, but like our I everything culture that Apple has helped us identify so clearly, I everything the Disney culture that teaches us and our kids, my kids, that no matter, no matter what, what matters most is how you view yourself and how you express yourself. And if you believe in yourself, Elsa says, there's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That's brilliant. That works out for her, doesn't it? Even Moana, cute little Moana, if the wind and my cell on the sea stays behind me, one day I'll know how far I'll go. It's, it's, it's the same trajectory, right? It's this idea of follow your heart. Choose your own path. If it feels good, do it. You do you, bro. Like this all there. I've read that the number one song played at funerals in Britain is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. That's telling, isn't it? Listen, you hear it. No wonder we struggle so much. It's so natural and it's so normal that we laugh about it. But it's where we live. There's a way that seems right to me. So that's the way I'll go. But in the end, that way often does not lead to life. And our experiences actually show us that. But we just continue in this pattern of what seems right to me. As if God's word is silent. But then there's the way of the life of the gospel and it's submitting to the authority of God's word and the lordship of the very son of God 
in every area of our life, not approaching one single thing without asking God what He thinks about it. Or not considering what He has already said about it. This is the defining moment of failure in Moses' life. He did what was right in his own eyes. He knew it and he covered it up. And after he learned in verse 13 that word had gotten out about what he had done, that Pharaoh knew and wanted him dead, he just literally took off. And it's a really shameful set of verses there. This is a personal exodus from Egypt before it's time to leave Egypt. Him making his way. But can I show you something incredibly encouraging about how God deals with failures? Because if you're like me and you read this story and now you're thinking about some of these failure areas that you maybe identify with, you might say, I get it. Yeah, I get it. And I'm there. I'm the failure in this story. Can I show you this incredible truth? God continued to work in Moses. He wasn't done with him. No amount of failure would ever or could ever turn God away from His people. He continued to lead Him. He continued to provide for Him. He continued to transform Him. In fact, failure was one of the chief tools that God used in Moses' life to transform him into the man that He was calling him to be. And in your life too. Failure may be a chief tool that God uses to transform you into the person He's calling you to be. In verses 16 through 22, we read that Moses went to this place called Midian, and there he came to this well to find water. turns out a lot of things happened at this well in Midian. A well was a happening hot spot for Moses. First, he met a wife. Dating principle. Look for a spouse at the water fountain. Or maybe just go like hang out by the fountains by the library. That's what y'all are doing, isn't it? Study, studying on the hills. I got it. I get it. It's the Moses principle. So you go to the water fountain. You find a wife. He did that. But, but he also found something else at the fountain. Moses also found a moment of redemption. Did you catch it? So these wells, this kind of like well would have been a very natural gathering spot for public people. And so these, these women are there. These are these daughters of this priest, and they're there to get water for their sheep. But there's also some shepherds there. These are ruffians, these shepherds who are just like there to get water for their sheep too. But they, they do something to the women. We're not told exactly what they do, but you can imagine some of the things that perhaps they were doing or saying. And once again... Moses steps up. But notice his approach is different than last time. Just a few verses later, instead of going to the extreme of anger, he becomes the defender of the weak. But in a whole new way, he steps in and he steps up for the oppressed. He protects the women and he even helps water the flock for them. It's so clear from the text that not only is his approach to the situation different, Moses himself is different. He has been transformed. God had taken him out of Egypt and through his failures had begun preparing him for the role that he would soon call him to as the defender of God's people, the protector of God's oppressed, the mediator to stand in their place so that they might be set free eventually from their bondage in Egypt. And I'm sure Moses didn't see it this way at this point. But God was preparing him for something ahead. Have you ever had that sort of 
Perhaps transformation in your life where somebody, a friend of yours, tells you you're not the same person you used to be. There's something different about you. You've really grown in this area or that area. Hey, you don't talk about that struggle the way that you used to. You're not doing relationships like you used to. Maybe you're in the middle of it now. And maybe you can see that at least you're approaching some area of your life different than you did last semester. Or maybe last year. Nick's story was such an encouraging evidence of that. This is a sometimes what feels like a very gradual change in our life, a slow transformation that we call sanctification. This is the work of God in your life, transforming you into the person that He wants you to be. Through His Spirit, making you more and more into the image of Christ. And sometimes it really is through that tool of failure that God works most intently. I recently heard a story about a man in the highlands of Scotland. He was a farmer and a pretty devoted atheist. This was years ago, and he had a temper problem. And he would go to this, he would go to his barn, and when something would happen and it would frustrate him, he would just like start kicking his animals. That's a weird illustration, right? But he would just get so mad, he would start kicking like his dog or a sheep or whatever. He didn't care that much. It was just something that he did. And the story goes that when this Christian evangelist was traveling through their area, this guy went for whatever reason. He heard this guy preach, and Jesus converted him through this evangelist. And he goes back home, and he starts to live out his life as a Christian. A few weeks pass by, and he's out in the barn working, and something happens to trigger his anger again. And guess what he did? He kicked an animal. And he was so frustrated. And he went to his wife and he was crying and he was like, it didn't work. Like I thought this Jesus thing, like I thought I believed and I thought I was different now, but I'm angry again and I'm still doing the same things that I've always done. And his wife looked at him and said, look at yourself. You are weeping over your sin. You've never responded to anger like this before. The fact that you're so upset over your sin is proof that the Spirit of God is working in you. You ever felt like that, man? You look at your life and you thought you were growing. You thought you were changing. You thought things were different, but you kind of keep finding yourself back in the same patterns. And you get frustrated from the same mistakes. You feel like a constant failure and you hate it about yourself. Listen. I want you to know that that feeling of failure or sadness, that is actually what growth looks like in the Christian life. That is evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in you. Because if God's Spirit was not at work in your soul, you wouldn't hate your sin. You would be numb to it. You would be comfortable with it. You just wouldn't care. But where you see brokenness and sadness and even hatred of something in your own life, perhaps something from your own doing, that is God's sanctifying work in your life. But can I also say that I'm aware that sadly some of you are not there and you really are numb to your own sense of sin. Even tonight you're kind of balking at this idea right now of this personal sin because you are numb to it. You don't care. You don't have these defining moments of failure because you don't really do anything wrong. You feel bad for those who do. I think this story invites all of us to pray for transformation. And that's a dangerous prayer. 
I do think God will answer it to pray, God, I am numb to the things that are killing me. My heart is so hardened and desensitized. Would you tenderize it? Holy Spirit, show me the ugliness of my sin. Break me. Transform me. It's a dangerous prayer, but it's a freeing prayer because this is how the counterintuitive gospel works in our life. Growth feels a whole lot like brokenness. The more you pursue holiness, the less holy you will feel. That's growth. And that's transformation that only God Himself can bring. John Newton is the famous 18th century slave ship captain turned Anglican priest and abolitionist years later because of his conversion to Christ. And he went on to write Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. His story is amazing. But I want to share with you two quotes from Newton. One, years after he fled the industry himself, Newton worked with William Wilberforce to abolish the African slave trade in England. And during this time, Newton wrote a pamphlet concerning slavery where he gave this confession. And he said, it's a confession which comes too late. He says, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Sanctification hurts, but it's transformative. Another great quote from Newton, perhaps you've heard before, is this one. And this is a tremendous comfort, I think, to any believers who are struggling with sin. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. And I'm not what I hope to be in another world. Yet, still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. This was true for Abraham. This was true for Isaac and Jacob. True for Moses and David. You trace the characters through Scripture. You come to people like Paul and Peter and David. God knows failures. And He transforms them. And maybe the greatest grace in this passage is that God hasn't changed His mind on Moses. He hasn't abandoned him. He hasn't looked at him and said, well, I, I had plans for you. Like I was going to use you, but now you've done this and got to go find somebody else. He doesn't do that. He could, but he doesn't. Because he's a God who not only transforms failures, he's even a God who uses failures, which is good news for us. Because that's all God has to work with. Don't miss how the section ends, the entire section which just chronicles the misadventures of a failed leader, how it concludes. And I want to read it again, those last couple of verses. Starting in 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And the story ends. Despite the failings of their human shepherd, Israel's divine shepherd would never forget his people. He hears their cries, he remembers his covenant, and he continues to work his plan of redemption, even through, even through their failed leader. They're broken Moses. God didn't give up on them. He didn't set His plan aside. Instead, He carried on carrying for His people. He hears them. He remembers them. 
He sees them and He knows them. I don't know what failures in your life have come to mind as we've worked through this passage. But I want you to think about it again for a minute. I want you to even call to mind some of the areas where you feel like you've blown it. Perhaps something that you've done or a season you've been through, decisions you've made, regrets you've accumulated. And I've got plenty myself. I've thought about this definitely as I've worked through this passage. Broken relationships, um, terrible decisions, outbursts of anger, selfish motivations, um, prideful manipulations in all sorts of settings. The ways that I've hurt my wife. Um, the ways that I've not been at all the father uh, that I should be to these two little girls. Like many areas of my life. And it affects ministry too, largely. Uh, ways that I have felt in ministry. And, and I hate this reality, but like you and your time, Ed Clemson, will walk away with some of my failures in your life. And that's something that like weighs on me and disturbs me. And it's just true. And... Um, and I hate it. And so I need to know that God can work through failures. Like, I need to know that. Uh, I'll give you one just stupid story of a failure in ministry. Uh, years ago, when I was an intern in seminary, uh, I, I had a job, actually, as, a, as an intern in my church, Grace Community Church outside of Charlotte, where I was working with college students. It was kind of like a proto-RUF for me. And we had about 15 local college students who were involved in their local um, community colleges. So we would meet with them, we'd do Bible studies and different types of things. And one night we were going to this concert, and uh, we were going to this concert together, and there were, um, there were like, I think, ten of us, and uh, t- ten students. And there were eight of them who had been around the whole time, they, were, they all knew each other, they were all friends, they were all kind of hanging out. And there were two who were brand new students, like they had just come very randomly to join us for this event. I didn't know who they were, and none of the students knew who they were. So we all met in this parking lot. And I really wanted these two new students to connect. Just like I want that. If you're new, I want you to like, I want you to have 50 people talk to you tonight. I would love to see that happen. And so I wanted these two new people to have like all these people welcome them and include them. And so we're like, all right, it's time to go. And the eight people all went into their two cars. And then the two people were standing in the parking lot. And so I was like, you guys can ride with me. So I get in my car and I'm mad. I'm really mad self-righteously mad like it was not good and I got out of my car and I walked over to those other two cars I opened their door and I stuck my head in and I said you guys are terrible at making new people feel welcome and I slammed the door and I got in my car and we drove away now that's leadership (laughs) that's effective That's, that's how to teach them I've got hundreds of these stories What does God do with failures? Here's what I want you to think about as we finish this out. I want you to think about your failures and hear this truth. God hears you. God remembers you. God sees you and God knows you. Did you hear the movement of that through that passage? How can this possibly be true? How does God remember His covenant with His people? Here's how. As Moses looks out over his people and he sees them in need, God looks out over his people and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Moses does it in a broken way. God does it in a transformative way. He sees us as needing desperately to be rescued, even from our own failures. 
God remembers his covenant, which says, I will be their God and they will be my people. His covenant, which says, if either of us break our commitments to one another, someone has to die. And God sees our failures and he steps in and he steps up. And he takes on our problems in his own hands. There's a way that seems right to man and the end of it leads to death. And Jesus comes and Jesus leaves his position of power. And he comes to be with the people that he identifies with so that he might take on the death that all of our good planning brings. The death that all of our human efforts and human striving and self-promotion and deep damaging individualism brings. He not only sees our problem, but He takes it on Himself when He takes on the cross. And as Moses identifies with His people and works to save them, albeit in a very broken way, Jesus identifies with us and He becomes broken. And He even takes on the ways that seem right to us but led to death. And it was His death. God knows you and God sees you and He says, this one is mine. This failure is mine. And He fights for you and He stands in your place when the attacks from the evil one come, the accusations that come and say, see, you are a screw up. Over and over again, you'll never get your act together. He comes and He stands for you and He fights and He protects the weak and He defends those He loves. To the point of death, Jesus is the defender of God's people, the protector of God's weak flock, and the perfect mediator to deliver God's oppressed children out of bondage into real freedom. God knows you, and God sees you, and by His love and His grace, He transfers your failures to His one and only Son. And through Him, He transforms your life through His Son's death and resurrection for you and His Spirit's work in you. That is, that's the good news of the gospel for failures like us. I'll close with this last story. There was a young man named Robert Robinson who became a Christian in the 1700s. In the 1700s, he had lived this kind of really wild life up to that point and He had heard the gospel actually preached by the famed evangelist George Whitfield, and Jesus saved him, similar to our story earlier. And his life was radically changed. He became a pastor, and he wrote some pretty famous hymns. But as he got older, he began to make a wreck of his life again, pretty severely. And he felt like he had made such a mess of his life that he could never return back to God, that he had failed too much, that he had fallen too far. And so one day he finds himself riding in a stagecoach with this woman, a complete stranger, gets on and she has this little hymn book with her. And she's sitting there beside him reading this hymn named Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And she's just going on and on about this hymn, this incredible idea, these streams of mercy flowing. It's so moving. And Robert Robinson looks up at her and says, Madam... I am the poor unhappy man who wrote that very hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the same feelings I had back then. And she looked at him and she said, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. What a picture 
of grace for failures. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're doing right now or what you will do. You haven't failed too much. You haven't fallen too far. In Jesus Christ, the streams of mercy are ever flowing for you. He knows you. He loves you. He remembers His covenant for you and He is transforming you through your failures even now, even tonight, even as a student here at Clemson. For His glory and for your good. Would you pray with me?